Hello, my name is Rodrigo. This is Ryan. And this is the Ether Podcast. And today we're looking at Mark 8, verses 31 to 38, a passage that is uh, very dear to my heart and I think very dear to a lot of people in our family of churches, Ryan. And uh, it's a very crucial point in uh, Jesus' ministry as he really begins to teach his disciples what it really means to be his followers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, last time we uh, we talked about this question of who Jesus is in the eyes of his disciples, which we talked about the answer to that question shapes how you approach Jesus and how you follow him, what he means to your life and and what that does to your routine, your schedule, the way that you spend your money, the way that you prioritize your life all these different things. And what we're going to start seeing in the next couple chapters is that there's now this shift where Jesus starts talking in a very different way than he's spoken previously. And what we also see is that the timeline for what we've seen in Mark comes, it starts slowing down incredibly. So the first couple chapters leading up to eight, took about three years for us to get through. Um, and now we're going to really hit the brakes as we come screeching into uh, the Passion Week and leading up to the cross. Um, as Jesus starts to really dial in his message, really get on a, a singular focus with his disciples, because everything up to this point has been Mark proving what he said at the very beginning of the book is that Jesus is the Messiah. And so let me show you a number of things. And so he goes through and talks about a bunch of miracles and, and the things that Jesus said and the way that he impacted people. And now he's going to start talking directly to the, to the hearts of, of the disciples. And so just to kind of back up the last things that we were reading about, Jesus had said to them, he said, all right, I, I need to know who, people say that I am. And now I want to know who you say that I am. And that's, that's what we camped out on that. uh, In Mark eight, verse 29, Jesus looks at, at his disciples and specifically Peter. And he says, but what about you? He asked, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you're the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. And then Mark goes on to say, he then began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law. Then he must be killed and after three days rise again. And he spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. You know, one of the things we didn't get into is this idea of what and who a Messiah is in the context and in the minds of, of the disciples. Correct. Um, and as you look at the different characters that, that Jesus had around him, his different disciples, it's very interesting to see the variety that's there. It'd be very interesting to do a Bible study on the different characters that Jesus had, where you had Matthew, who's a tax collector. He's working for the Roman government. He's kind of a puppet of the state. People hate him for that. You've got Simon, the zealot who is um, a hard right winger, very nationalistic, 
Um, a lot of these zealots were known to be uh, thugs and murderous. And um, they say that Barabbas uh, was a zealot and that he, he killed a Roman soldier. Why? Well, because you're in my country. I want you out. Right. And so you've got these different kinds of guys that are, that are in this small group of disciples. You got Matthew, who is a representative of the Roman government. And then you've got Simon, the zealot who hates the Roman government. And then you've got all these other guys who have different perspectives. And Peter sort of becomes the spokesperson for all of them. And I think your perception of who and what a Messiah is depended on your background, some of your worldviews, uh, your political leanings and philosophies depended the way that you read the scriptures depended on all these things. And we're going to get into the fact that we do this still today, but I think Peter kind of tips his hand to, to who he believed that Jesus was, or rather who he believed the Messiah to be. And I think that what we see is that Peter wasn't necessarily saying, Jesus, you don't have to die, but it was more that the Messiah doesn't have to die because I've got this, this perception in my mind of who you are supposed to be. Right. And so I don't think that Peter was necessarily trying to rebuke Jesus. Um, well, it, it says that he was rebuking Jesus. So clearly that's what he was trying to do, <laughs> but, but it wasn't more of this, Jesus, you're wrong. It, 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 I think it was such a conflict in his, in his uh, mind of, hold on a second. This doesn't jive with, anything that I thought the Messiah was going to be. I just got done telling you that I think you are the Messiah. And that's not what my perception of the Messiah, what he was going to be or what he was going to do. You know what you and I were talking before and, and clearly the Messiah isn't necessarily a term totally exclusive to Jesus. And there's other, other people in the old Testament that you could say in one way or another, were the Messiah. The Messiah, all the word means is the anointed one. So the chosen one, if you will. And so God chose a series of people all throughout the Old Testament. Uh, you know, Abraham was chosen, Moses was chosen, but Jesus is supposed to be sort of the the, the Messiah of Messiahs. Right. And the you know, Messiah. Just, right. And just like you were saying, you know, and I think I've repeatedly said this all throughout this series. I think it's very easy for us to get on the disciples when they make a mistake, like rebuking Jesus for saying that he's going to die, because we have the luxury of, of sort of already knowing the future of the story and having a a more holistic comprehension of the whole. Sure, we got the benefit of hindsight. Bible narrative and everything. Yeah. But from Peter's perspective, what he did was a very normal reaction because what he's expecting the Messiah to be is a military leader and somebody who's going to kick the Romans out and is going to be king and is going to rule over the land. And obviously, Jesus saying that he's going to die and be raised again doesn't fit anywhere within that idea of right. who the Messiah is. Yeah. Yeah. They've, they've got this, this whole idea built up through the old Testament about talking about 
calling the nations um, back to the city of God. And I'm going to gather my people who in their minds were not just God's people in more of a general term. It was the Jews that I will call the Jews, the Israelites, the sons and daughters of Abraham back to Mount Zion, which is the, the, the geographical setting of Jerusalem and of the temple that I'm going to call them back to there. Why is he going to do that? Well, it's to establish his kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of God. And anytime they thought about, and we think about what a kingdom is, I mean, I don't know about you, but I've got, I've got mental pictures of these European castles. Right. And that's what I think about kingdoms. I think about a king and the power that he commanded and the, the, uh, the pomp and the circumstance that goes with him. And so here's Peter saying, I believe that, that you are going to, to establish the kingdom of Israel. And that meant something very particular to him. And then Jesus immediately follows it, or at least the way Mark writes it, uh, the way that what immediately follows is this discussion about Jesus, the king and the, the, the restorer and the redeemer of the kingdom of Israel saying he has to die. How does that work? Right. Yeah. And it, and it doesn't fit, which I think then Jesus's reply um, sort of sets up not only for the disciples, but for us, sort of this idea that the kingdom isn't necessarily what we think it is. It's not an earthly kingdom. And even the whole basis of being his follower isn't necessarily a, an earthly one, a carnal one, but it's very much on the realm of God. And I'll just read his response. This is verse 33. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And again, calling Peter Satan is very harsh. Um, and it's not necessarily that he's... I've read different um, co uh, commentaries on this. It's not necessarily that he's just straight out calling him a, a devil or a demon, but that he's just sort of opposing him in a way that Satan would, if that makes sense. Well, where else does that, that phrase appear? Well, when they talk about Satan. Right. Is, right. But there's a very, there's a very specific time that that, that phrase appears and it's, it's uh, stated a couple of times in the gospels, but um, Matthew four is the clearest one with the temptation of Jesus. Right. And Satan shows up and, um, we ought to do a podcast on the temptation of Jesus. I think that'd be a good one. We sure um, will. But looking at the different um, statements that Satan makes, that the very last one is um, in Matthew chapter four, verse eight. It says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And so you've got this, this image of Satan showing Jesus, here's everything that you are here to accomplish. 
and I'm going to give it to you. And you don't have to die. You don't have to, to go through this pain and this anguish that that's before you, that, that all you have to do is take this shortcut and I will give you everything that you hope for and desire. And Jesus's response is, that is not what I'm to do. That is not what I'm here for. Get behind me, Satan. And so here in Mark 8, we see the same, the same idea of Peter saying, look, <laughs> Jesus, you don't have to die. And I'm sure that a message of you don't have to die is very appealing. Right. So I'm sure that that's what Jesus would have loved to have heard. But Jesus was staunchly dedicated, fiercely dedicated to his, his mission of being here to save us, which would only happen, could only happen through his death. Right. And so, you know, I think one of the interesting things about this and this whole idea of setting your minds on the things of God is that really from this point on, he's going to teach his disciples what that means he begins to really teach them sort of the the ethics of the kingdom. And and again, we'll do podcasts about all of these later because in many ways he teaches people how to, what, again, what it really means to be his follower. But what that means is is completely different than what they're used to as far as like the way they lead, as far as the way they treat other people, as far as the way they interact with the weak and the lowly of society, uh, even as far as how they treat the impossible and how they treat the things that are really difficult. Jesus really begins to set their mind on a completely different plane. Mm -hmm. And I think the reason why it's important for us to understand this is because I think nowadays that Christianity is, is very mainstream, if that makes sense. I feel like we make Christianity the the solution and the key to a lot of our everyday problems. And I'm not saying that it's not, and I want to make this very clear. I'm not saying that living a Christian life doesn't help you because it does. But I think we we tend to speak about Christianity and we tend to look at our walk with God very much in terms of the here and now and in terms of how it sort of fits within our earthly life if you will when in reality the greater the greater perspective that christianity is supposed to have is in in the things of god christianity doesn't make sense if, if you don't have this mindset of the things of God, mm-hmm. there are things that in Christianity, the whole, even a whole, the whole idea that comes up later, hey, when, when, uh, when in Romans, Paul says, do not pay evil with evil, but evil with good. That doesn't make sense on, a, on an earthly plane to be, to be good to somebody that was bad to you. That doesn't make sense to, to say something like, hey, the vengeance is the Lord's. That doesn't make sense. It, it, mm-hmm. A lot of these things to to the Bible calls us to to be kind beyond measure, to be forgiving beyond measure, to be gracious beyond measure, and a lot of those things don't make sense unless your mind 
is set on something that's not here. And I think one of the, the basis of discipleship and one of the very foundations of it is that it's really based on the things of God. And I think, I think we lose sight of that. And that's why I'm bringing it up. As you read through the, the story, and, and I think that we can't emphasize it enough that, that one of the best ways to understand what's happening is to read large chunks of of the Bible and the passages um, rather than sitting and focusing on one passage or two. Um, Because what you see is this conversation between Jesus and his disciples about who do people say that I am? Well, I say that you're the Messiah. Okay. Well, I'm going to have to die. Hold on. That doesn't jive with what I was thinking that you were. I don't think you need to die. And Jesus says, hold up. You've got a very human mindset. You need to have the things of God on your mind, in your heart, about the way that you act. Everything about who you are needs to be about me. And so let me tell you about me. Let me tell you about the heart of God. And he, and he moves into this this mindset, this description of what that means. Let me tell you what the concerns of God are. What does that look like? How should I live that? And Peter's got to be asking himself, all right, I, I obviously need my brain readjusted. So what does this mean? And Jesus spells it out very clearly here as he paints this very clear picture for Peter the other disciples and obviously the crowd to kind of help us shift our mindset about who Jesus was. And let me read this again, because I want to make sure that I'm reading the very words of Jesus here. And this is what he says. It says, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take off his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. Now, let me make this very clear. Jesus defining what it means to be his follower. And he's asking for a lot. Mm -hmm. Because basically what he's saying here is that we have to live a life in which we deny ourselves like we basically abandon ourselves and take up our cross and follow him now we understand the cross as sort of the jesus died for our sins and all this stuff that's again a mindset that has the luxury of 2020 hindsight but that's not what he's talking about here he's not talking about his sacrifice and his death he's literally talking about the cross which at the time was a very painful 
and shameful way to die. This is how criminals died on a cross. And he's literally asking his disciples basically to be willing to die, Ryan Novak. Yeah. To carry the cross and follow him. Is he saying like, hey, you have to be willing to die and not just any death, but a very shameful and painful one. Mm -hmm. And that, my good friend Ryan Novak, is not how we think of Christianity today. No, not at all. Not at all. I think about, we live in uh, the beautiful city of Columbia, South Carolina, and uh, there are an amazing number of churches in this city. And more than just churches, there are just amazing buildings and architecture, uh, amazing programs that are in place. And they are beautiful places to be. They are comfortable. The AC runs cold in the summertime. <laughs> the heating is nice and warm in the wintertime. The chairs are nice and soft and cushy. And uh, the messages are oh so good to the ears. They're all about wanting to take care of your needs. That every one of these churches, and I've been to a number actually. Um, it's one of the things that I, I personally find um, to challenge myself is to go to these different churches um, from time to time just to, to get a feel for what else is going on out there. Because I think if I stay in in one fellowship of churches or one tradition too long, you become very narrow-minded and you don't know what other people believe and what other people are saying. And so it's nice to be able to go to other churches from time to time. But a lot of these big places, man, they come with a crazy number of programs for all kinds of different people, um, you know, uh, from married couples to single folks to divorcees to single parents to um, kids programs with older kids, kids programs with younger kids. Um, come on out and we've got a program for young professionals and uh, for musicians and just any sort of walk of life that you can imagine. These churches have programs for because we want to cater to you. It's this very comfortable sort of lifestyle. And it's, it's not necessarily this idea of shame, pain, and difficulty that Jesus is clearly laying out here. I want to contrast what Jesus is asking for here from his followers to this thing that you actually sent me, Ryan Novak, which I found very interesting, which is from a Pew study. All right. And basically, they simply asked a bunch of people, do you believe in God? Now, here's the good news. Uh, of the people that they interviewed and asked this question, 70% uh, said that they believe in God of the Judeo-Christian Bible, uh, while 30% say they believe in another higher spiritual power. All right? Now, when you read that, you go like, yeah, that's pretty cool. But then here's, here's this other part. Okay. Let's Among self-described Christians, 
The data shows a similarly complicated spread of theological beliefs, because in the paragraph before they're talking about the beliefs of atheists. For example, among the self-described Christians, a full 20% believe in a higher power, but don't believe in the God described in the Bible. Can you say that again? Yes. Among self-described Christians, so among the 70%, all right? So are you a Christian? Well, hold on. (laughs) Hold on, Brian Novak. For example, among self-described Christians, which again is the 70% that believe in the God of the Bible, a full 20% 20 of those believe in a higher power but don't believe in the God described in the Bible. The number goes up to 26% for mainline Protestants and 28% for Catholics. So I don't understand. <laughs> I don't understand. It felt like a joke reading it. Yes. But so basically you ask what somebody, it's... are you a Christian? And they say, yes, I am. Right. Do you it's... believe in God? Eh, maybe. <laughs> so, but yes, but there's probably a higher God than the one that's in the Bible. Like, and again, there's sort of this, this, um, we, we think of uh, a virtue, like open-mindedness is, it is a virtue to a certain degree, right? But again, when you compare that Jesus, what Jesus is asking for, hey, if you're going to follow me, you need to deny yourself, carry your cross, and like follow me. When you compare it to what he's asking for and what this article says, those two definitions of what a follower of Christ is, whence a Christian. Yeah. Those two are very different because Jesus is asking for full devotion, one that would even cost you your life. And the other one was simply when they get asked, hey, do you fully believe in the God of the Bible? They go like, meh, not really. I mean, I do, but I don't. You know what I mean? Like, I do, but I don't. Mm-hmm. And see, but that's not what Jesus is saying is one of his followers. That's not when he begins to, to explain like, Hey, this is what it means for you to follow me. This is what it means for you to, to live the life of the things of God. I'm going to require your full devotion so much Uh so that you have to be willing to give your life, which is very different from like, Hey, there's a God maybe. Yeah. Yeah. This is a, a, a difficult, I, I consider myself to be a relatively educated um, person, but I'm reading through this, the results of this, this uh, survey, and I'm just beside myself and feeling like I have to be reading this wrong. I, I need to see a chart, but just the, the idea that, that somebody calls themselves a Christian, but I probably don't believe in the God of the Bible. Wait a minute. But I thought you were a Christian. Well, I am. But doesn't that mean that you follow Jesus? Yeah. Uh, the guy who claims to be the son of God? That's right. But you don't believe in God. That's also right. And you just, your mind starts to hurt from it. And as you dig further into the results of this, um, they, they broke down. Looking at demographics is very interesting and very telling because the higher someone's education was, the less they believed in God. 
right. but the less that they believed that God had power to control events or had impact on your life or um, that they had a relationship with him or that there even was a God. So people with high school education believed in God much, much, much more than somebody who had uh, a college degree, a college education. Um, and so you start thinking about, okay, um, so let's see, um, 66% of people with high school or less education, 66% believe in God as described in the Bible. 45% of college graduates believe in God as described in the Bible. And 6% of people in high school or less don't believe in God or higher power. And 16%, so that number jumped 10 percentage points if they were a college graduate. And I think what we, in America at least, in the United States, we really put this this value on education, this value on um, going to college and and thinking and, and learning and bettering yourself. And what this seems to say is that the result of that is this self-sufficiency, this, this belief right. that, that um, I don't believe in God. And, you know, it can happen for a number of reasons. I've seen different things that lead me to believe there's no God. I know more about science and it seems to suggest that there's no God. Um, I've done a lot for myself and it doesn't suggest that there's a God. There's a lot of different reasons why that number could change. But the idea that, that what we're telling ourselves as a society is you need to better yourself. And what that does is it leads to less dependence on God. But this, this idea of I, as I do better myself, I am more sufficient and I have less belief in trusting God. And so it, it's an interesting thing to ask ourselves of where do we stand? What do we believe? And what does that mean for our lives personally? Um, and where do we kind of fall in that spectrum? Because it's not enough to simply say, I'm a Christian, I'm saved. Because clearly we've got a variety of responses coming back of people saying, yes, I'm a Christian. Yes, I believe in God. Yes, I'm a Christian. No, I don't believe in God. Right. And, and I think as, as disciples, hopefully as true disciples, it makes us feel that, that burden of getting out and preaching the true message, the right. true gospel, and, and realizing that just because people say that they're Christians does not mean that they're saved. It doesn't even mean that they believe in the God of the Bible. And so we have to, to sort of shift our mindset of, hey, I want to tell you about God or I want to tell you about Jesus. There's a lot of people out there that are going to say, I already believe in Jesus. So you're not trying to sell them on the idea of Jesus, but it's, it's trying to, to dig in there and get deeper. And I think that that's one of the challenges that, that comes along with what Jesus is saying is, look, you got to carry your cross that there's going to be some work here and it's going to be something that's, that's humbling. And in the eyes of some people, as we've seen from the results of this Pew research is that some people are going to look at you as being foolish that I'm more educated. You need to believe, you need to trust in me. Right. And there is no God. You clearly haven't done your homework. You clearly haven't 
um, bettered yourself, gained the education that you need or whatever. And so it's a very humbling exercise to share our faith. It's a humbling exercise to get in there and to challenge somebody's beliefs. Um, but that's exactly what Jesus is saying is, look, you need to have a heart for other people and a heart that's willing to, to die. That's not going to hold on to this, this persona that you're trying to build for yourself, that this is some, you have to be something different. You have to be me. You have to live for me and you Rodrigo Acosta have to die um, in order to do that, that you can't keep holding on to that persona of who I am and my education and my right. station in life and my, um, my social economic class and everything. That is a very humbling experience to be a, a Christian, which is not easy for me. And it's not easy for a lot of disciples, especially in the United States. Right. Which um, it's interesting you say that. Because I think there's two things here. One, I think we've we've clearly muddied the water as what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons why I'm excited about the, what we're going to do for the next few weeks is because we're going to very clearly lay down what Jesus tells us. We that we need to the way we need to live if we're going to be His followers. Mm-hmm. And first and foremost, again, is this idea of self-denial and death right and again there's this idea and even when you're talking about education we educate ourselves because we feel like that's sort of a way in which we conquer the world if that makes sense like sure that's how we gain more world like we get the more educated we are the better we get paid uh the more we know all this other stuff and and again a quick aside i'm not knocking an education. Both <laughs> Ryan and I are college educated. Uh, soon enough, I will start my master. I have nothing against education. Education is awesome. But there is sort of this idea, like you were saying, that the sort of the more we gain, the more we feel like we don't need God. Right. And, and it's, it's very much this idea that Jesus is talking about is that we literally have to lose ourselves to be his disciples. Yeah. And not only is that against, I think the general way in which we look at life, but this thought, and I've always found this thought to be very, uh, un-American Ryan Novak, because the, the American dream, if you will, for good and for bad around gaining more and more stuff Mm -hmm. and sort of conquering more and more things. The American dream is to gain the whole world. And yet what Jesus is saying here, again, is very anti-American in that he's saying, hey, if you really want to save your life, you have to lose it. Yeah. That your mission in life isn't to gain the world, but it's actually to lose everything. Yeah. Yeah, it can be, it can be very difficult and growing up in American run schools, the whole idea is education. Let's continue to improve ourselves. Why? What's the end goal? Well, it's so you can get a better job, so you can get more money, so you can have a better life. And Jesus is saying, that's not, that's not the meaning of, of life that 
I'm expecting you to lose your life. And it's, it's that backwards idea of let's better yourself versus you actually need to give yourself up. And I think one of the things that's challenging to me because I am an educator, um, I've, I've gone through uh, my undergrad, I've got my master's and, and so I've got this mindset of, of education and what do we see in the book of Acts, but we see the, the priests and these teachers of the law who have studied for years and years and, and knew the, the Torah. They knew the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. They knew them by heart. They knew the book of Leviticus by heart and all the rules. And they were being stymied and stumped and, and challenged by what the Bible describes as ordinary men, unschool ordinary men. And I'm challenged by that because I do put such an emphasis on myself for education and wanting to, to constantly consume more knowledge. And the idea here that Jesus is saying is that is not what this is about. This is not about gaining for yourself. It's about giving everything else up. And he's going to go on. He's going to challenge us to, to, um, to not worry about what you have to say. You don't need to worry about what you're going to say because I will be with you. I will give you the words. I'll put them on your heart and in your mouth. You don't have to worry about it. And so often, one of the things that stops me from being the disciple that I know that I'm supposed to be is this fear of, I don't know what to say. And I'll tell you, dear listener, that as somebody who has studied this for years and years, <laughs> um, that fear never goes away. Right. That there's no feeling of, I will ever have accumulated enough knowledge to, to get over that hump. It's just a decision. It's just a, um, a willingness that says, all right, I'm just going to do it. And I may look foolish and somebody may have something to say that I won't have an answer for, but I need to do it. Um, that it's not about gaining more knowledge for yourself. Gaining more knowledge is great and it helps you understand the Bible and you get to learn some of the cool um, underlying ideas and, and find those Easter eggs. But it doesn't necessarily make you better at evangelism necessarily. It doesn't necessarily build your faith more. In fact, it may uh, put it on shakier ground. Um, and so there's a lot that you could do, but Jesus is saying there is something different about what I am calling you to do. Right. And I want you to give up your life. I want to sort of, close with talking about this this whole the this part of this whole thing um in verse 37 it says for what can a man give in return for his soul and you know one of the things that i've always found very curious about this scripture there's no there's no talk of sin in any of this hmm. right there's no talk of if you want to be my disciple you have to live a sinless life or if you want to be my disciple, you have to, um, I don't know, do X, Y, or Z. 
or not do X, Y, and Z. Or not do X, Y, or Z. There's no talk of that. Yeah. And this in in the middle of this whole statement, there's this very powerful phrase that says, what can a man give in return for his soul? And the answer to that is nothing. There's nothing that we can give in return for a soul. Not a thing. And I think that the encouraging thing about this is the obviously sin and the knowledge of sin and the understanding of sin and staying away from sin, biblically speaking, is a very important concept and idea. Mm-hmm. However, neither here nor in any of the other passages that we're going to look look at as to what it means to be a disciple is there any mention of sin and i'm not saying that to to, <laughs> to tell everybody like hey go and sin because that's not the point all right what i'm getting at is that jesus because there is nothing that we can do that we can give in return for our soul like there's not enough that we can do to save our soul, Ryan Novak. There's not, there's just nothing. Mm-hmm. But what really matters is having this relationship with Jesus. One in which we we have stopped living for ourselves. We have denied ourselves our own life. Yeah. And live a life for Christ. Like that. That is what saves us. Mm-hmm. This idea of that we don't profit from gaining all this stuff, that losing, and again, I call this kingdom math, that losing is actually winning and gaining is losing. That doesn't make sense, again, unless you put it things in the context of the things of God. But again, there's this idea of, man, our only hope is to live life this way. And I think to sort of even accentuate that point, at the end here, he says, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, uh, of him the, the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and when the holy angels. And he's literally saying like, hey, if, if you're not going to live for me, if instead of embracing me, you shun me and you're ashamed of me, I'm going to be ashamed of you. And basically with his last sentence here, he's saying that this is the essence of our discipleship, that you embrace me completely. I'm going to be crucified, which again is a very gruesome and shameful death. You're going to embrace me because of that, that we no longer live a a life that is self-centered, but it's a life that is centered on Christ. Yeah. Yeah. I think at the same time, we do have to, to be aware that um, I think one of the knocks on Christianity is that, that it can be so um, it, that it lacks happiness and it lacks joy and happiness and joy defined the first century church that people were joyous all the time. I mean, even after they got whipped and and flogged in the book of acts it says that they went on their way rejoicing and you go well that's just backwards but this leads to a joyful life so it's written with such with very negative terms of 
of losing your life, losing your life. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? There's a, there's an opposite side of this that look, there is absolute benefit by taking up the life of Jesus. That that's the life that we're meant to live. Why would you not want it? Um, so, so there are the, the, the two sides of the coin. Um, but one is, is that we can't be unaware of the need to put our own lives away. And that's something I still wrestle with of, of what does that look like? What does that mean? What does that mean for my job? What does that mean for my kids and my wife of losing myself? Um, you know, how do I balance responsibilities and, and everything? And I think that's, um, an interesting conversation to get into. Um, so yeah, we can't miss that, but at the same time, we don't want to walk away and go, man, this is, this is asking me to, to just be bummed out my whole (laughs) life. And that's not what it's asking. It's Jesus came to give us life and life to the full. Correct. As it talks about in John. Um, so this is not a negative thing, but we right. do have to be aware of the cost that, that is required. Not, um, uh, there's no way around the requirement piece of it. Right. And I think, I think this is where um, faith comes in, right? Because sort of the prom- the promise or the, I don't know if you can really call it a promise, but, but the reality in which Jesus is speaking of is that to lose is to gain. Mm-hmm. And again, somehow, by the power of God, by the power of his spirit, when we decide to live this life, when we decide to live this life of us losing ourselves, what Jesus is saying is that we're actually going to gain life. Mm-hmm. And again, that seems very counterintuitive. That doesn't make earthly sense, but it makes kingdom sense. It makes kingdom of God sense. And I remember um, when I was studying the Bible and when this scripture was shown to me, I, I, was, I thought about this for like three days straight, Ryan. And I was like, that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't, it just, I, I don't understand <laughs> how that's supposed to work. Yeah. And that was a huge reason. What does one of the huge things that held me back for years to really make a commitment to live my life as a disciple. Hmm. Cause I just could not, part of me could not either a understand nor B see how could that possibly be true. Yeah. And, and I can tell you this for a fact, when I made a decision to, to become a disciple, I still didn't have neither an understanding nor necessarily an idea of how that was supposed to work, but I decided to trust that it would. And it did somehow Mm -hmm. my life got richer. I was happier. I I felt like I gained a lot more by losing than I ever did by trying to gain. 
And again, it didn't make sense, and it doesn't make sense when I just say it, but I, this is where faith comes in. There's there's a lot of things that Jesus says that are hard to swallow and that are hard to follow. Like, this is a very hard thing to follow. What he's asking in these verses mm-hmm. is not easy. It's a hard thing, and it requires a whole lot of trust. And again, I think that goes that goes with this whole idea of self-denial. We have to deny the part of ourselves that goes like that that we have to deny the part of ourselves that walks up to that cliff and is looking at the emptiness up down there and goes, mm-hmm. I can't make this jump. But I'm telling you, it doesn't make earthly sense. It makes kingdom of God sense. And that's how the kingdom works. So with that thought, Ryan Novak, I've thoroughly enjoyed this podcast, by the way. This is not that I have not enjoyed any of our other ones, but this <laughs> this one. This one, Ryan Novak. This, this is good. Here, here. That's right. So with that thought, we will leave you. Hopefully you've, you've enjoyed this as much as we have. Thank you so much for listening. This has been the Ether Podcast. You can find us on social media at EtherMMC. And we want to remind all of you that this is a crowdfunded uh, endeavor and we appreciate all of your support you can find us on patreon and thank you so much for listening and we'll see you on the next one